Bed fire danger warning, cold weather warning and strong monsoon signal are in force. That's all the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Brian Wong. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Janice. On today's program, we're looking at humanity's evolving relationship with artificial intelligence and how sometimes AI can be rather unpredictable. Take, for example, recent reports that ChatGPT is taking a page from us humans and getting lazy in the run-up to the Christmas holidays. Users have been complaining that the chatbot is avoiding complex and boring tasks or giving short answers. Is it really getting lazier? Why? And how much can we really trust ChatGPT and what it says, even as media companies are striking deals allowing the chatbot to summarize their content? After 9.45, we'll look at a new happiness survey on high school students. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have in the studio Kevin Pereira, Managing Director of Blue Intelligence Limited. And also joining us on the line is Michael Gaisley, the Managing Director of Network Box Corporation. Good morning to you both, and uh, thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so, uh, Mr. Pereira, um, let's go to you first. Why are people saying that ChatGPT has become lazy? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for having me on the show today. So, you know, I think as we look at sort of model development, when we see kind of uh, what's, what's happening, you know, even with my experience, I've sort of seen the same uh, sort of shorter answers, a little bit, you know, not as good as it used to be. And, and, and at least anecdotally, from my experience, I see that too. Uh, you know, if I if I think about why that's the case, and I sort of put my business hat on for this, I think part of the challenge for a lot of these uh, companies is that on, they're trying to, on one side, reduce cost, on the other side, try to make money, right? So if you think about it on the cost side, uh, whenever you, me, or anyone else asks a question to these models, they actually pay something. Even for the free versions or the premium versions, there's a cost associated with that. And a lot of the times, the cost is related to tokens or the length of output, right? So the length of input and the length of output as well. So shorter answers means that they actually pay less, right, from a cost perspective. So on the business side, it kind of makes sense as more and more people use it. If the output becomes a bit less, then their cost base goes down. So that's helpful on the cost side. If we think about it on the revenue side, I also think that a lot of these firms have a free version of their model and then also a premium version of the model they have to pay for. So if the free version gets a little bit less good in terms of capability, that might also nudge some people to, uh, to maybe pay for the more advanced versions as well. So there's probably a little bit of uh, you know, influence from both of those sides if I just put my business hat on. All right. Uh, let's go to uh, Mr. Gaisley. Mr. Gaisley, what do you think? Is, is this uh, mainly about cost and uh, is this worrying? Um, I mean, it, it could, could be a number of things. Um, the laziness factor is true. Um, empirically, you know, people have tested the, the models and found that they are getting more terse in their response and giving less of an answer. Um, cost definitely uh, is, is going to be a factor, although uh, a lot of researchers have found both the paid version and the free versions are both becoming lazy. Um, there's also a strange sort of almost funny factor of a seasonal difference um, when when you fool the 
the system into thinking that it's the middle of the year, say May, um, you're, you're getting better responses than when it's thinking it's December. So it's almost mimicking uh, how humans are where they're in a holiday mood. Um, and you're also sort of seeing strange situations where if uh, tips are being offered, uh, where the, the AI is sort of being told that it's going to get a tip if it gives a better answer, or if um, the circumstances change where researchers are sort of saying that, oh, you know, I, I can't do all the work myself uh, because it's hurting my eyesight, or I, I can't type because I don't have fingers, you know, strange responses like that are generating better responses from the AI. But personally, I find that kind of disturbing as well, because you're in a situation where you're teaching ultimately an AI system that could become sort of a super being that's sort of above us in, in capabilities. And you have researchers teaching it all kinds of strange things. And you think, well, what could, what, 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 you know, what could actually all of that lead to? Um, I, I do worry about that. Thank you very much, uh, Michael. Now, Kevin, uh, turning back to you, you know, for the benefit of our audience, is there a possible correlation between you know, how the AI agent is reacting here and the sort of feedback responses that we as human users are giving it? And could that perhaps help explain the increasing laziness in the run-up to Christmas, given that we humans are also getting, I guess, suppose, uh, suppose more lazier in response to the festive seasons and greetings as well? Yeah, I've heard actually a lot about that. Um, you know, if, if I think about how that correlation could manifest, you know, one of the things that a lot of these models use is something called the reinforcement learning with human feedback, right? And the idea there is that basically when the output comes out of these large language models, human beings either give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. So you sometimes see that with uh, a lot of the models that are out there. So in essence, if you think that we as human beings get lazier, you know, closer to the end of the year, maybe we're more likely to give it a thumbs up for a sort of shorter answer or maybe something that's not as good towards the end of the year. And if that is actually happening, then that will influence the model output as well. So I think, you know, how that correlation happens is because of some of the training and the feedback processes that are in these large language models. Thank you. And turning over to you, Michael, you know, we're seeing this phenomenon of hallucinating AI, right, where essentially uh, the AI produces intelligible but fundamentally erroneous information or rather false information that misleads the users. Could you perhaps explain uh, for the audience why that's the case and if you see any correlation between that phenomenon and the increasing laziness in AI around this time of the year? Yeah, I think that um, fundamentally what's disturbing on, on sort of a greater scale is that originally in, the in 1950, Alan Turing uh, created the Turing test where the idea was really an imitation game. And the game was to see whether the machine could fool humans into thinking that, um, you know, the human was talking to another human. We've suddenly elevated everything way beyond that by, instead of it being a game and instead of um, just trying to, you know, see whether that person is human or a machine, we're fully aware that it's a machine, but we're believing everything that it says. And that that's already uh, cost dearly in things like, uh, you know, law courts where lawyers have relied on, on the output of, of AI and the references and the case law and everything stated, it's just been completely fabricated. Um, and and I, I think that um, we're in very early days of sort of useful AI. And I think to just believe everything that it comes up with is 
seriously <laughs> flawed. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't trust it at the moment. And what's even more disturbing is the link between media companies and AI. You're, you know, you could well end up in a stage where you're fact-checking your AI output against references that were probably also created by, by AI. And we, we could end up in a situation where we're fact-checking on the Internet, but more and more of the Internet can't be trusted to start with. Right. So, so Mr. Gaisley is uh, describing this as quite disturbing, uh, Mr. Pereira. I'm like looking at uh, OpenAI's uh, recent uh, response to uh, cl- uh, complaints over ChatGPT being lazy on their uh, Twitter or X post. And, and they said that they have not updated the model since uh, 11th of November and uh, the change in behavior wasn't intentional and uh, they acknowledged the unpredictability of the model and uh, they're investigating the issue. So, I mean, it acknowledges its unpredictability. That is kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah, and like, you know, I think one of the challenges with AI, and specifically the output, is the gap between what you expect and what you actually get, right? So I think with a lot of that, that area of uncertainty, that is definitely something that we need to be very mindful of. And I think the thing that probably makes it slightly more you know, potentially worrying is that the improvement in AI tends to be exponential rather than linear. Right? So as things get better in a shorter space of time, those uncertainties might become more worrying for folks. So I think we need to keep in mind that the development's getting much faster as well, which then means the uncertainties potentially could become a bit more risky. And on the subject of OpenAI, uh, Michael, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on the recent debacle involving Sam Altman and the board at OpenAI, and if you see that as uh, bearing any significance whatsoever in relation to the pace of AI development at large. Well, I think that what happened there is still not entirely clear. And what happened, you know, in just one company under one set of circumstances that probably have to do with money as as much as technology um, and control and power and all the rest of it, which which, uh, happens in a lot of boardrooms. Um, I, I, I think that that's less relevant than overall what's happening in AI, because I think that um, the problem is the old adage of sort of garbage in, garbage out. And with AI, we're not really 100% sure what we're training the AI to do or to think, quote unquote. And um, as I discussed last time uh, I was talking with you guys about this, um, there's a famous case where the British uh, Air Force, they were trying to train using AI to recognize uh, Russian tanks that were in in a battle theater. And it, you know, it, it was incredibly accurate at one point and then became incredibly inaccurate. And in the end, they worked out that it wasn't recognizing tanks. What was happening was the AI was actually recognizing whether it was good weather or bad weather. And the different photographs of the ground have been taken at different times of year. And you know, it, it was completely doing the wrong job, but the humans didn't realize that until much later on. So we're in a situation where if we're training AI, we have to be really sure what we're training it to do or to think or, or to produce. Now, this strikes me as an example of a goal misgeneralization when it comes to sort of the typical uh, non-alignment or alignment-related issues that AI experiences. And I was wondering, Kevin, what are your thoughts on the non-alignment problem at large between AI and humanity? Could you perhaps explain for the audience what it looks like in general and should we be worried at large about alignment 
between AI and humans? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, right? So, so on a high level, you know, when we talk about alignment, you're often talking about value alignment in the sense of the model or the AI, what it creates, and where does that fall in terms of values? And then also, if a human makes a similar decision, where do they fall? And uh, a few weeks back, I was at a conference where they were actually talking about this, and a few um, academics were actually providing some frameworks into how this can be thought about. And so what they were looking at was criteria on the psychometric side, so safety, security, things like that, and they used these types of criteria to judge, quote-unquote, the value orientation of an output. And then they looked at what would humans do? And they looked at the, the difference in the three-dimensional space, and they were thinking about how do we reduce that value alignment. So I, I do think this is going to become much more of an issue going forward. And in fact, one of the people that were at that conference actually suggested that in today's world, when we use computing resources, we use about 90 95% for model training and model development. And they were speculating that in the future, it might be 50% for model training and development, and then 50% of the compute is actually going to be used for value alignment, which is very unlike what we see today. Um, but I think that might become very useful in trying to close that gap of value alignment, which I think more and more people are highlighting as a potential problem going forward. All right. And, and Kevin, I just want to go back to the earlier point you made about uh, uh, development of AI, how it's uh, developing really fast, exponentially. And uh, uh, does it, would, do you think it'll make it even more difficult for us to be able to predict uh, what we can expect from AI? And uh, in that case, I mean, can we really trust AI uh, when we don't really understand it? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of uh, different areas where we can kind of attack that question. But I think one of the key pieces that we're seeing recently is this kind of theme of explainable AI, right? So can we actually understand what is the decision process and, uh, and you know, can we get some insights from that? So one of the ways to think about that is something called chain of thought, which is quite interesting. So the idea with chain of thought AI is you give it a question, but then you actually ask it to give you the answer in terms of a logical process, right? So it, this is kind of similar maybe to when you did a, a test as a kid, and one version of the exam or, or question asks you, give me your answer, and the other one says, show your working, right? So chain of thought is really about show your working, and therefore, we can start to see what is the process that the AI uses. So that's the bit where I'm optimistic. Um, but I still think if you actually delve into the math of explainable AI and look at it, it's very, very difficult because it's a very massive combinatorial mathematical problem. So to actually identify exactly wh why a decision is made because of this specific training data is almost impossible. So I think explainable AI is very hard to do. But maybe things like chain of thought might give us some insight into how some of these decisions are made. Now, Michael, um, on explainable AI, are you worried potentially about sort of the tendency of AI to ex post rationalize, which is to say they'll come up with explanations that ostensibly justify how they arrived at a conclusion, but had nothing to do whatsoever with the actual causal processes that led to the conclusion. It's just that they're finding you know, evidence and, and almost making it up as they go along. Um, to what extent is that worrying in, say, courtroom cases or in legal adjudication cases, as you pointed out just then? Well, I mean, already uh, right now we're discussing about the AI giving its working. How do you know it's not lying? I mean, we're, we're in a situation where we're, we're just continually trusting this like another computer process or like, a, you know, a, a, another thing in science. But it's completely new. And I think with anything that's completely new and ultimately is going to be this powerful, um, we have to be concerned. Mr. Pereira, how, so how do we know if it's not lying or if it is lying? 
Yeah, very, very tough question, right? Because I think when you look at output from a lot of these models, you know, many of them are given the explicit objective of becoming you know, conversational rather than accurate, right? So it's almost a human experience thing versus the actual accuracy of it. So in my role as a, as a part-time professor at HKU and HKUST, you know, I think uh, one of the skills that I'm trying to get the students to think about is when you look at generative AI output, what's the sort of critical thinking mindset that you should have uh, going? And then also when you're trying to train these models, what is the process you're using, right? Uh, training, but also using, right? So prompting, things like that. So, you know, if I think about assessment, uh, the university education, I think in the past, assessment has always been done on the output, 100%. But I think in some of my classes, I want to change that a little bit. And I want to make it, you know, let's say 20% of the grade for the output, but then 80% of the grade for an essay on why use that prompt, why use that tool, and what was your refinement process. And I think if we get better at the process, then hopefully, you know, we address some of these issues. But it's, it's not something we'll 100% I think be able to address. There will always be some uncertainty. All right. Uh, we're now also joined on the line by Christoph Chow. He's a council member of the Hong Kong Association for Computer Education. Good morning, Mr. Chow. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. And thanks for joining us on the program. Uh, we've been uh, we've been talking about the unpredictability of ChatGPT, uh, AI hallucinations. Um, in your view, what can the public do to uh, ensure the accuracy of the information that they get from AI? Um, from my opinion, first of all, uh, what the teachers need to do is to teach the students about the digital literacy, how to fact check, uh, how to fact check, how they could know they are using the AI, all the information are correct. Um, and this is the important part uh, in our curriculum. And basically, I think all the Hong Kong teachers are going to teach about how to fact check for the students. Because uh, lots of them are going to use different kinds of uh, chatbots to uh, maybe have a reference with their projects or homework. That's right, Christoph. And on, on the note of, you know, essentially the dangers that Kevin flagged just in about students not understanding how to use generative AI, do you see a case for, you know, really teachers going back to the basics and getting students to write handwritten essays under timed conditions where there's no means of deploying AI whatsoever? And is that probably the best means of getting them to produce sound and independent work that's authentic? Or do you disagree with that approach? Um, actually, I think uh, when we're talking about how to use the AI for teachers to learn, I think it's just the same idea to discuss about how can we use the calculator in early childhood because there are some discussions that the students said that they should not use the calculator for their mathematics work in early childhood. But I think it's actually the same thing as how the students should use the AI chatbot to help their, uh, their learning. Uh, for example, uh, for some primary school, they are not allowing students to use calculator. Why? Because they think that uh, the students, when they use the calculator, they will skip uh, some mathematical concept. It's not good for them. Uh, but for me, I think uh, students can use calculator in their early childhood. The problem is that how the teachers can teach them to use this kind of uh, learning materials. This is the same as AI. Uh, for teachers, for us, we need to teach the students how they can act, uh, accurately to use the tools to learn. So. Um, I think AI probably is a good tool even for early childhood. Thank, 
Thank you, Christoph. And now turning over to you, Kevin, what do you make of that? Do you see analogizability between calculators and AI, especially generative AI, given that generative yeah. AI often has a inaccurate results or could hallucinate? Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, so I think it's you know, there are some parallels with the calculator example, but I think AI is much more far-reaching than that. So you know, I, you know, use the calculator responsibly is fine, uh, but I think using AI responsibly is a couple, is much more nuanced, and I, I think a couple orders of magnitude harder to do. I mean, I think that being said, you know, you know, a lot of people ask me often, like, how is AI going to impact jobs of the future, careers, what's going to happen? And I, I genuinely believe that you know you're more likely to be affected by uh, someone who knows how to use AI rather than by AI itself. Right? And I think part of that is really about understanding how to use this properly and developing a bit of domain-specific expertise as well. So I think the best users of AI are the ones that have domain-specific expertise. So you know kind of what to look for when it comes to things like hallucinations, and at the same time, you know how to use the tool as well. Right. I just want to go back to uh, Mr. Chow. I mean, you're saying that uh, teaching... Uh, students how to use uh, AI is similar to uh, using a calculator, but uh, I mean, when you when you look at it, uh, do you, when do you think it's a good age to uh, uh, teach students about AI? I mean, we we just looked at uh, AI hallucinations. How can students uh, tell when uh, um, there is a uh, fake information in the uh, um, information that's generated by AI? Um. Accuracy is uh, actually it's all about uh, how the teachers prepare uh, for students to use all these kind of tools. Um, because for me, I think it's a good tool for students to learn because for the, all the AI tools, just like uh, ChatGPT, actually they are hands learning. Because uh, in our Hong Kong curriculum, we always focus on the learning diversity. And AI actually is a very good tool to solve this kind of problem, no matter they are in primary school or secondary school. All the students in Hong Kong or in the classroom, they will have the problem of learning diversity. Some of them learn very fast, some of them learn very slow. So uh, AI is a very good tool to solve this kind of problem. Uh, for example, the AI chatbot, actually, they, are some, uh, they can do very well in personalized learning. For example, they can... Uh, Use, uh, for example, in mathematics, uh, actually they can finish some exercise on some AI platform. And then the AI platform will uh, try to focus on their uh, learning difficulty or their problems or their mistakes. And then focus on their mistakes, they can generate similar uh, examples, similar exercise for them to learn. So actually it is good for either primary school or secondary school for students. And on that, Christoph, what do you make of the pace of the rollout of you know, AI tools in education? Do you think it's too fast? Do you think it's too slow right now in the status quo? And more importantly, are the teachers and also the staff of schools equipped to you know, incorporate AI into the teaching repertoire and routines? Mm, I think, first of all, the teachers, uh, not only the students, the teachers in Hong Kong, they should learn more educators and try to figure out what's going to happen and how to use the AI to enhance our teaching. This is very important part. Um, for example, I some, actually sometimes I will share about the ideas or about the Chinese input, Chinese typing input, different methods. For example, from uh, quick or some different kinds of Chinese typing. Why I will say this? Because uh, when a the student, uh, they are just like secondary one, 
in our school. Is that good for us to teach them how to input the Chinese uh, words from their uh, keyboard or, or other things? Because uh, for students, if they just join our secondary school, secondary one, they are going to spend six years in our school. So actually, the teachers need to uh, focus on what they are going to learn within these six years. It is the same as AI. Because for, I think for the coming like 10 years or something, AI is a very important part for their career. So actually, I think first of all, the teachers should learn how to use AI to teach them or how to strengthen their knowledge. All right. I guess it's all about achieving the right balance. Uh, Mr. Chow, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Christoph Chow, a council member of the Hong Kong Association for Computer Education. And uh, we're going to take a short break uh, for the uh, news and uh, we'll uh, return to our discussion afterwards in around uh, two minutes time. Mr. Pereira and Mr. Gaisley, let's continue Afterwards, uh, when we will also be joined by Florence Serban, lecturer at Baptist University's Department of Communication. If you want to ask our guests questions or just share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call on 233-88266. Now, uh, here's a quick look at the weather. Cold, mainly cloudy and dry. The top temperature will be around uh, 13 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh northerlies, a strong offshore and on high ground. And uh, currently the uh, red fire danger warning is in force and also the cold weather warning. And currently the temperature is uh, 11 degrees and the relative humidity is uh, 67%. <laughs> It's now 9.30 with a news summary. Here's Barry O'Rourke. Further talks are taking place on a draft United Nations resolution calling for a suspension of fighting in Gaza after a vote was delayed for a third day. The UN ambassador to the United Arab Emirates, which drafted the draft resolution, Lana Nusebe, said additional diplomacy is needed to yield positive results. The French President Emmanuel Macron has defended a new law on immigration that's caused splits in his own party and led to the resignation of a minister. The law was passed by Parliament with help from the far-right National Rally Party. And police have arrested a woman in connection with the murder of her companion in Yunlong yesterday morning. Two others were arrested on suspicion of obstructing arrest and assisting offenders. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. Hi, I'm Captain Blood. Many patients are waiting for my help. Even when there are extreme temperatures or after a storm or heavy rainfall, I am determined to donate blood. If you're planning to visit a country with potential risks of infectious diseases, donate blood first before traveling to avoid deferral later. One blood donation can save three lives. Act now and make an appointment via the Hong Kong Blood app. Cervical cancer is common among women in Hong Kong and regular screening is an effective way of preventing it. Women aged 25 to 64 who ever had sex should have regular cervical screening. Even if you have reached menopause, have no symptoms or have no family history of cervical cancer, you still need regular screening. Love yourself. Have you had your screening yet? Visit cervicalscreening.gov.hk for details.
Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Brian Wong and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Kevin Pereira, Managing Director of Blue Intelligence Limited, and Michael Gaisley, the Managing Director of Network Box Corporation. And uh, also joining us now is Florence Serban, a lecturer at Baptist University's Department of Communication. Good morning, Mr. Serban. Hello? Florence Serban, are you there? Oh, well. Oh, well, uh, hopefully we'll uh, get to him in a bit. Uh, maybe we go back to uh, Kevin and Mr. Pereira. Um, so um, what do you think of uh, what uh, uh, Mr. Chow was saying earlier about uh, um, how teachers have to be well equipped uh, to teach students uh, how to use AI and uh, how we need to achieve a, a good balance between uh, um, fact checking and uh, AI development. Yeah, I think it's quite important that, uh, that 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 happens. And I think one of the best ways to be able to do that is for teachers to actually go and try and use these tools. So something uh, we at Blue Artificial Intelligence have been asked by a few universities is actually to come in and give training to faculty about how to use some of the generative AI that's out there. And what I noticed at the beginning, there's a little bit of fear, but once they start playing with it, start using it, they get excited about it. And I think once they're excited, they transfer this enthusiasm to the students as well. So it's an education for everybody in the process. And my encouragement to teachers is go and try it. And once you start to use these low-code and no-code tools, even if you don't have programming or coding experience, they're designed to be used by everybody. And once they can use it, I think they'll feel much more comfortable in teaching their students how to use it as well. All right, and I think uh, we have uh, Florence Serban back. Uh, good morning, Mr. Serban. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on the program. So we are, um, as you know, we're talking about uh, uh, AI development and uh, also whether ChatGPT has become lazy. What's your view on all of this? I, I would like to get back to, to the previous point. I think uh, it's uh, absolutely uh, true that we need to, uh, I use the word play, right? When we are going into class, uh, we don't know exactly what the destination will be when using AI with our students, right? Because these kind of tools, they are always developing and they are always changing. So I wouldn't like for the instructors to wait until we have a, uh, complete uh, roadmap and just try to experience and try to uh, use um, uh, AI generative tools in our teaching as much as possible. If we don't do that with students, students will do it anyways by themselves, right? So uh, the idea that if we don't talk about the elephant in the room and if we are just waiting for uh, a more uh, uh, proper outcome, uh, students will still be there and they will still use it. So I think it's always better to try to uh, you know, work with students together and to be very honest about it and to explain to students that uh, we don't know exactly where we will go with it, but it's better to start using it now because uh, otherwise it might be uh, too late in the future. All right, better to use it now. Okay, I've got a, a few messages and comments from our listener. I'll just read them out. Uh, one is from Ilner. He says, uh, the recent reports about ChatGPT getting lazy before the Christmas holidays make me reflect on the importance of not always relying solely on AI. It's a good reminder for us humans to remain cautious and mindful, as AI systems can have their limitations and quirks. And I also have another message here from Brooke. 
And uh, Brooke says, uh, your guests' warning of the dangers of AI are speaking common sense. AI is a highly significant risk to the body of knowledge on which our past was founded. When any bad actor can generate truths that will fool most of the, uh, most of the people most of the time, we are all at risk. And uh, that's from Brooke. So, uh, Mr. Pereira, what do you think? Are we, is there an issue of us uh, relying too much on AI? You know, I think over-reliance on technology has has been something we've also seen in the past as well, not only with AI, but I remember, you know, even with Google Maps, occasionally people would drive into a lake and then say, hey, Google Maps told me to do that. So I think for me, it kind of highlights the importance of human common sense and human sanity checking. So whenever you get the output uh, from AI, always just ask yourself, like, does this actually make sense? Right? I think that's part of the process that we should all start to uh, use when, we, uh, when we're dealing with AI for day-to-day tasks, but also for very high-level and important tasks as well. Right. And, and Mr. Surban, I mean, earlier we talked about a lot about uh, AI hallucinations in the first half of the program. And uh, we, we also mentioned about uh, uh, the, the link between uh, media and uh, also media companies and AI. Um, what's your view on that? I mean, with AI hallucinations, is, is it really a good time for um, there to be links between media companies and AI? I think it's inevitable, right? Whether it's a good time or not, that's not up to the media companies, unfortunately. I think the, the, the issue for media companies still remains. They are uh, not connecting directly with uh, the users, right? They are using intermediaries. Right now, we, use, we get a lot of our news from social media, so we don't go to buy newspapers as much as we used to. We don't watch television news as much as we used to, or even listen to the radio. <laughs> but at the end of the day, right, the problem for, for, uh, for media companies remains that uh, we do not get directly to them. And we are using now this middleman, another middleman, yeah, after social media, which would be AI. And we don't know exactly where, where it will go. Uh, I think we need to go back to the basics. If you have uh, good data, you will have a good output. If you are training AI models with uh, accountable uh, uh, sources, with uh, information that can be uh, verified with people who will stand by what they are publishing, then I don't see an immediate problem from from that, right? Because at the end of the day, AI models will still output data. So it's better to have trustable sources for it. But I think it's still an early stage and I can't envision exactly how this will go in the future, apart from the fact that, yes, media companies will continue to suffer because they don't get the revenue they used to. Thank you. And turning over to you, Michael, you know, we're seeing the rise of deep fakes of AI generated content and propaganda, especially, you know, issued by uh, regimes or governments that are bent on uh, political interference. You know, we've seen that over the past couple of years. To what extent should we be worried about the interactions between the rise and development in AI, social media and politics at large? Yeah, I think we need to be extremely concerned because we're in a situation where AI is not a calculator. It's not as simple as two and two makes four. Um, we're, we're getting, a, you know, just days ago, the people that created ChatGPT are, you know, blankly stating that they don't even understand why you're getting wrong answers and short answers and things like this. We're in a situation where 
this system can evolve in ways that we can't even dream of, and it can have power that's well beyond anything that we've ever dealt with before. And it's a bit like, you know, we're all discussing the power generation possibilities of nuclear power without thinking about it could blow up and kill us. And I think AI is extremely dangerous. And in my area of cybersecurity, you know, you're looking at uh, there is imminent danger from smarter automation, which can attack us. And also, as you just said, we can we can end up with almost perfect impersonation where we can no longer trust what we hear or see anymore. In fact, short of meeting someone in a room and shaking their hand, you don't even know whether you're talking with the real person anymore. And will this um, have a material impact on, say, the upcoming year of elections in 2024? We've got India and the US, you know, two very large democracies heading into election season. What are the implications of, of AI and misinformation on these elections? Well, absolutely. I mean, you, you've already seen deep fakes that are almost impossible to differentiate from, from the actual person. And, you know, from, from the last time this happened to now, there's already been three years of development. So next year, when you're going into these major elections, people are really going to have to think carefully what they see in that video, whether it's real at all. And finally, just Michael, what are your quick tips in terms of digital hygiene? How exactly can we ensure that we can navigate this era of misinformation, disinformation, deep fakes with, a, I suppose, a degree of vigilance that's most necessary? I think we have to go back to the source of where the information came from. And when you read an article, um, it, it's, it's no good just to trust what's written in the article. You really are going to have to go and fact check. And unfortunately, you're going to have to navigate through a lot of fake information on the Internet and go to reputable sources. So if, if you find yourself with something terrible like cancer, you need to go to somewhere like the Mayo Clinic and, and look up there, not just trust what people are saying on Facebook. You know, we're, we're living in a very dangerous world now. Right. It's easy for, for an expert like you to, to say that. I mean, but is it easy for members of the public to always uh, find the source of the information or uh, fact check? Well, as, as you just said, um, common sense becomes really critical. And I, I think that all of us know the reputable sources that are available out there uh, for, you know, different topics that, that you're interested in. And you need to go and, and look things up now um, to just trust what's written. It, it's no longer good enough. And it's obviously not good enough. And listening to educators comparing AI with calculators, that fills me with even more dread, quite frankly. All right. And Mr. Pereira, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, uh, Brian was just talking about uh, the possible, maybe the possible risk of AI to uh, government uh, uh, operations. Uh, what, what can governments do, for example? I mean, I was looking on, on I was Googling and uh, I saw the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, they are now requiring uh, that humans must be uh, in the actual uh, decision-making process uh, when, when the AI is uh, operating. Is that something governments can do? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, uh, you know, recently we've seen quite a few regions in the world coming up with their sort of regulatory framework or, you know, how they want to look at it going forward. Um, again, different, I think, you know, regions have different views on this, but I think the camps are often on one side pro-innovation and on the other side kind of, you know, like being in this area of regulating everything. Right. And I think it's a tough it's a tough question. I don't think there's a right answer necessarily. Different jurisdictions probably going to find different um, sort of mindsets on that uh, that are appropriate for them. 
Um, but I, I do think it's something that directionally we need to think about. Like, do we want to kind of let the AI run and, and find some innovation that comes out of it? Or should we really, really constrain it? And, um, and I think that's a challenge for regulators going forward because that, is, uh, that, is, that has some uncertainties there like we've talked about today. And how we want to manage those uncertainties will manifest itself in the regulatory framework that we're going to see with AI going forward. And finally, over to you, Florin. What are your thoughts on this front? I, I, yeah. mm, I think different regions, yeah, as the previous speaker said, different regions will have a different approach. My question is whether we uh, will have a more international body, right? Think about, we had recently a summit on climate change, right? And uh, these people are getting together and they are uh, agreeing on something they should do in order to tackle uh, climate problems. And Obviously, that seems to be easier because, uh, uh, you know, from a scientific point of view, it's quite straightforward what you need to do. For AI, I think it's more difficult, but I don't really think that, uh, you know, having the EU with its own uh, EU Act for AI and having the White House uh, putting forward its set of rules and also having China, right, having its own uh, global AI initiative, I don't think that will really work. And we also need to ask ourselves, what do we prioritize? Do we put the people first, but how do you really do that? Do you allow innovation to continue, right? And we focus on innovation and we allow uh, these things to go on. What exactly will we tackle when we set up uh, the regulatory bodies? What will be the priority? And I think we are still at an early stage where we don't agree on these things. And I hope we will have more debates and we will have uh, uh, people getting together more often and try to tackle these things. But at one point, yeah, someone will not be happy, right, with the way we will proceed globally with, uh, with uh, AI regulations. All right, uh, Mr. Surban, we'll have to leave it here for now. Uh, thanks again for joining us uh, on the program. And uh, also, uh, uh, Florence Surban is a lecturer at uh, Baptist University's Department of Con uh, Communication. Many thanks uh, also to uh, Kevin Pereira, Managing Director of Blue Intelligence Limited, and also Michael Gaisley, the Managing Director of Network Box uh, Corporation. It's uh, now a nine, uh, coming up to 9.46, and uh, in a moment, uh, we'll find out more about a new happiness survey on high school students. Operation Santa Claus 2023 is on. The annual charity fundraising drive jointly organized by Radio Television Hong Kong and the South China Morning Post is, for the 36th time, helping those in Hong Kong who need it the most. Operation Santa Claus has raised more than 369 million Hong Kong dollars for over 338 wonderful charity projects over the years. If you would like to help by donating any amount at all or by arranging your own fundraising event, just go to our website for all the details. OSCHK.org. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. A new survey on more than 5,000 high school students between uh, September and October have found that 80% are mentally troubled or have uh, experienced some form of mental distress. To tell us more, we're now joined on the line by Dr. Anna Ng, an assistant professor at Caritas Institute of Higher Education, who helped with the study. Good morning, Dr. Ng. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, can you first tell us about the uh, uh, the different types of problems these students are facing? Uh, what are some of the causes uh, of their mental distress? 
Well, the major issue is related to um, the uh, actually is about the psychological distress. But then uh, the correlation, the highest correlation is related to their sense of self-esteem. And then, you know, unexpectedly is about their lack of sleep. And the third area is regarding their uh, self-rate um, health status. So the low self-rate uh, uh, sleep and then um, as well as their uh, sense of uh, he- healthy life is a major cause as well. So um, we are promoting uh, or recommendation is how to enhance their um, self-esteem as well as their uh, feeling of uh, likeness of their school life. Right. I was looking at the uh, data from your survey and, uh, of course, uh, it says that 80% of uh, students uh, surveyed, they experienced some sort of uh, some form of mental distress. But then uh, your your survey findings also said that 50 something, uh, more than 50% uh, were still happy. Um, what's the reason behind that? Well, we didn't talk about uh, the happiness part, but then, of course, uh, the data shows that uh, around uh, 58.3% students report that they are happy. And then uh, we focus on uh, those who feel uh, distressed as well as uh, not feeling happy. Actually, there are four, uh, three index. First of all, it's about the happiness index. We adopt this WHO happiness index scale. And then uh, another question is about whether they are feeling happy. Um, for the WHO index, is actually regarding... Um, related to the psychological healthy um, index. So psychologically, they are not um, at least around uh, 74.4% of secondary students report and being unhappy. And then the other scale we adopt is the psychological distress scale. So the two factors are actually uh, opposite which but each other. It's not just about whether they are feeling happy or, uh, or feeling psychological healthy. But the, on the other hand, we adopt this uh, psychological distress scale. So um, we find that there's a mixture of feelings. Uh, one hand, on one hand, there are more than uh, almost 60% of students feeling happy. But then the feeling of psychological distress is more than 80%. So um, that's the point that we want to highlight, that uh, even though um, there are with quite a lot of students feeling happy. But then for those recently happened uh, suicidal cases, uh, we always find that there are lots of cases not being identified um, by the uh, counseling professionals or healthcare professions, such that uh, we didn't know that there are students are feeling uh, tremendous stress uh, from their school and as well as the post-pandemic situation when they have to cope with um, the resume of study. And then... Um, uh, how to catch up with all those uh, uh, studies or academic work to face a public examination. Because we did this co- uh, survey, not just for the primary school, but this time it's a secondary school one. So there's comparison of the same district um, students, primary school in early this year, and then now it's the secondary school. We find that secondary school students are less happier, are less happy than the um, uh, primary school, and then they are more distressed than the primary school students. This is really interesting because what your mm-hmm. survey results suggest here, Anna, is that um, there's a not there's a sizable chunk of students who are both happy in general, 
but also who experience um, to varying degrees distress when they go to school at home. So do you think this is indicative of a broader trend where we often associate perhaps unduly, you know, depression and the issues of depression with individuals who are exclusively unhappy and distressed. Whereas in practice, even if you're happy in general, you could also feel episodes of extreme distress, anxiety, <laughs> and also potential depression. And that's a subset that we ought to take more seriously um, when it comes to high school and also primary school students. Yeah, actually, it's a human nature, right? Whenever I... Um uh, share these findings with uh, uh, some public uh, talks uh, with our public. Even adults are always thinking like that. I ask them, uh, are you feeling happy? Maybe 80% feeling happy. But then are you feeling a psychological distress? There's also quite a lot of percentage of students uh, or, or publics, uh, the audience would raise their hands. So this is um, it's like a human nature. But then uh, the issue that we want to point out um, is what are the causes or what are the correlations or factors affecting their sense of psychological distress? That's the point we want to highlight and see how we can put into or inform the practice in the front line for parents, teachers, as well as uh, uh, NGO social workers as well. So um, besides, uh, the major issue is about, <coughs> excuse me, uh, is the self-esteem issue. So for self-esteem, um, because that's the most uh, uh, factor with the highest correlation. Uh, so the issue is that we want to highlight that uh, we have to enhance students' uh, um, sense of uh, uh, value because self-esteem is to, uh, related to their rating of their value, right? So we hope um, our uh, parents or teachers would value them, even though they might not be uh, doing well academically, but then there are other varieties of talents and then we also have to uh, see that, allow them to see that even though the task that they, they did is not success or failure, but then the person is still well-valued. And then we hope there will be encouragement for them to excel in different areas. This is one point. But then the second thing, we, uh, without the research, we didn't, we, we probably are aware that uh, the sleeping hours is important, but then it really relates high, so highly related to the sense of uh, distress or happiness as well. So we hope uh, there will be um, less um, occupied with all those heavy uh, school work, so there are more time for them to relax and to enjoy the school life or more time to at least take more rest. Uh, and the, the other thing, the first thing is about uh, we use the, the scale of uh, the likeness or the quality of school life, which ranks so high as well, top three, top two. Um, and then so uh, we hope there will be uh, strategies for us to see how the school life can be more favorable for students so they are not being occupied just for the school work, but they can enjoy um, uh, the uh, school environment and then the peer relationship as well as their academic competence. It's not that all of them have to be the first in the class, but uh, whether they can um, really find that it's easier for them to uh, at least complete their homework, or at least they find that um, these uh, studies or uh, school was uh, interesting. So that's really important for our teachers to consider. So we hope there will be um, a cut of uh, or uh, uh, review of the scope of uh, schoolwork or coursework for our secondary school students, such that there will be um, the release of uh, academic pressure or fatigue of study in school life.
Right. So, uh, Dr. Ng, from what you're saying, uh, a lot of uh, the these uh, sense of uh, distress uh, experienced by uh, students you survey comes from uh, schoolwork, uh, expectations from parents and uh, teachers. And uh, you, you just mentioned uh, that you hope uh, schools can maybe reduce the amount of work for students. But but what about uh, parents? Um, I mean, how are you going to approach this? Well, um, we... Actually, the expectation from the parents is mildly related to their psychological distress. That's not the uh, the, the most important uh, factor. But then, of course, the parents' role is important because the parents might take our society's expectation or norms of our um, requirement of uh, the students. How can you be a good students or good daughters and 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 actually is of course related to the academic performance and then um, if our parents can you know join probably the school actually the school can organize some uh, activities re- uh, related to the parents um, uh, education and then to allow them to see that well it's not just that whether the sons or daughters can uh, important well it's important for their sons or daughters to to have a you know a great achievement in, in academic performance, but there are other values or talents to be to be to be um, trained, and then they can also be a good citizen of this of the community, or they can also uh, be a great um, you know uh, participants in in the community, or even earn money, right? So that's one point we think um, talking a lot. Uh, in different research, but this time there is a very uh, high, uh, at least the evidence is showing that uh, the school life is much uh, more important than just the parental expectation, but parents can also be educated in that way, yeah. Let's um, perhaps unpack the idea of low self-esteem a tad more here, Anna, which is, you know, there, there are lots of possible reasons as to why students might struggle to self-esteem. Body image, yeah. uh, mental health, uh, socioeconomic inequalities and deprivation, uh, just mm-hmm. poor relations with peers and, and then even bullying at large. What do you mm-hmm. think, just anecdotally or from your own past research, are the primary contributors towards the low self-esteem experienced by students? Um, I think the major issue is still related to the uh, our Hong Kong's you know, very structural problem is about academic performance in general because uh, for for my former research even by qualitative interview for the students their sense of uh, lifeline stories is always about you know um, the the struggles or negative sides of their experience it's always talking about i am a low achiever in in the school academically speaking then then uh, which examination I, I i failed and then i don't feel happy because this is the biggest struggle or biggest uh, frustration in my life so their lifeline story is always related to the academic performance. So almost 80% of those students I interviewed mentioned about uh, putting academic performance as, as their first priority of assessment of their own value. So I do think this is a major issue um, uh, that we have to uh, uh, tackle with. So that's why we hope in order to enhance students' sense of self-esteem or self-efficacy, we have to allow them to see that they are 
actually having multiple intelligence so they can, uh, you know, enjoy their own talents like, uh, you know, music, dance or chess competition. All right. All right, Dr. Ng, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us on the program. That's uh, Dr. Anna Ng, Associate Professor and Head of the Research Unit of Love, Marriage and Family. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and, of course, to our guest presenter, Brian, and producer, Raphael. Andrew Work and Kaha will be back with another edition of Back Chat tomorrow.